I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years, 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. I'm Trey Hooks, and with me as always is my co-host, Blaine Dowler. How are you today, Blaine? I'm doing well, Trey. How about you? Good, thank you. This time we're looking at the 19th Annual Academy Awards, covering films released in 1946, and the Best Picture winner of that year, The Best Years of Our Lives, directed by William Wyler. The film was released on November 21st, 1946, and featured an ensemble cast, including Frederick March, Dana Andrews, Myrna Loy, Teresa Wright, Virginia Mayo, and introduced Harold Russell. The film was based on a novella, Glory for Me, by McKinley Cantor. The screenplay was by Robert E. Sherwood. I'll give our listeners a brief synopsis. Fred Derry, a captain and bombardier with the Air Force, Homer Parrish, a petty officer in the Navy, and Al Stevenson, an infantry platoon sergeant in the Army, all fly together back home to Boone City after World War II. All three struggled to adapt to life after the war. Al returns to his middle-class apartment, his wife Millie, daughter Peggy, and son Rob. He resumes his job at the bank and is promoted to head of small loans, so the bank can claim to be pro-veteran. But he struggles with the conflict between his duty to his fellow veterans and the expectations of his employers who wish to apply for the uh, funds from the government for veteran loans, but not actually distribute them. He also appears to have a drinking problem. Harold Parrish lost both of his hands when his ship was shelled. He must deal with his self-loathing and sense of pity. His girlfriend, Wilma, still wants to get married, but he feels like everyone thinks he is helpless and doesn't want to be a burden. Fred returns home to a wife whom he married right before the war, Marie. Marie works at a nightclub but quits as soon as Fred returns and finds her. She wants to party every night and the two quickly work through his savings from the service. Throughout the movie, the lives of the three intersect. Fred, the highest paid of the three soldiers while in the service, finds that his job in the Air Force's bombardier left him with no useful skills, and he's forced to return to being a soda jerk. Fred is soon living a miserable existence, a wife who is contemptible of him and a job that's below him. Peggy visits Fred one afternoon for lunch, and afterwards, unable to fight their attraction, they kiss. He immediately apologizes and swears it won't happen again. Peggy invites Fred and Marie out on a double date, hoping that seeing the couple together will break her attraction to Fred. Instead, it reaffirms it, and she announces to her family she plans to break up the marriage. Al goes to Fred and demands he stay away from Peggy. Fred agrees, but the two friends become estranged. Fred urges Homer to marry Wilma. That night, Homer calls Wilma over to see how their nights would be, but she's not dissuaded. Fred loses his job when he knocks out an obnoxious customer who hassles and upsets Homer. He then comes home to find Marie with another man and tells her he wants a divorce. He plans of leaving Boone City, but on his way out is distracted by an airplane junkyard. He reminisces about the war in the nose of a B-17, like the ones he flew in, and convinces the construction crew which is disassembling them to give him a job. Al and Fred reunite at Homer's wedding, where the now-divorced Fred is Homer's best man. Fred and Peggy talk for the first time in months and rekindle their romance. And that was the best years of their lives. So, this movie has a reputation for being one of the best to depict the veteran experience. And I get that. This is one where it... It actually makes some subtle digs at the glorification of the soldier. Particularly, I think, with Dana Andrews' character, when his wife is insisting that he wears the uniform with all of his ribbons and commendations, and he does not want to. And then when he does it for her, and she sees him and she says, okay, now you look like the real you. And 
she doesn't notice the impact that has on him. It's clearly not what he considers the real him. It's a part of his life he's trying to leave behind, which is very common. My my grandmother is in a retirement home. She re arranges the Remembrance Day ceremonies for, you know, the November 11th ceremonies. I forget. Is that Veterans Day or Memorial Day? And they say it's Veterans Day? Veterans Day. Yeah, so she arranges the ceremonies for that, and she never understands why the veterans don't want to participate and talk about it. And it's, well, because it's an ugly part of their lives most of them are trying to leave behind. My grandfather served in World War II and had received um, a couple of accommodations. And he tossed them away. He He did not keep them because... He he felt like he had been awarded for doing unspeakable things. I mean, things that were part of war and things that you expect soldiers to do, but not things that he really thought should be glorified and remembered. So as soon as he was discharged and got back stateside while he was proud of his service, he he got rid of those decorations. Yeah, I can imagine that a lot of the things that soldiers would be commended for are frequently the very definition of necessary evil. Not all of them. I mean, there are people who've, you know, been received commendations for purely defensive actions and things like that. But some of them, you know, you could get commendations for killing large numbers of people, which is often stomach turning. This is a root of a lot of what PTSD comes from, which I think they didn't have the verbiage of post-traumatic stress disorder in 1946, at least not in the general public. If it was in the literature, I don't know enough about the psychological literature to know when that term came about. But I think it's very clear that Dana Andrews has it. He does. And also the fact that not every job translated to usable skills. You know, he, he wasn't in command, so he didn't have management skills. And there's no call for being able to look through a scope and pinpoint the exact spot to drop a bomb in peacetime at home. Yeah, that was he was coming back hoping for a better job than he had when he left. And it, it very quickly becomes clear that running the soda fountain at the local drugstore still is the only job he's qualified for. Now, the military has recognized that. The modern military does much more extensive training and education should you go that route. But the World War II military didn't. And you also see it with Al a little bit and the relationship with the bank. You know, I mentioned it in the synopsis. The bank liked being able to point to their vice president of small loans, proud veteran, you know, Al Smith, and they liked to be able to portray themselves as pro-veteran. They really didn't want him making any of the um, government-backed veteran loans unless they felt it was appropriately secure. Yeah, and he even made a speech saying, this is going to keep happening at his retirement party, and his wife is going, or sorry, not a retirement party, but at a celebration for him. And his wife is saying, well, your, your boss supported it. He's going, well, yeah, he supported it in public. But let's see what actually happens next time I do this. Right. So, And then, of course, we've got the Homer Parrish character who lost both of his hands, who was very nicely introduced. When you see him, he's kind of napping. Mm -hmm. They ask for people to help bring some heavy equipment out to a plane. He doesn't help. And they said, oh, what, you're too tired and kind of ridiculed him for him. And then when it's time to leave and he goes to sign the register, that's when you realize he's now working with hooks. Now, the actor Harold Russell really did lose his hands in the war. It was a different type of event than the, the one that happened to his character. But he lost his hands and he was actually the subject of the Navy training video designed to teach soldiers in this situation how to work with these hooks and how to basically live day to day and William Wyler saw that video and that's when he said here's my Homer 
that is the man we are casting. And I, I think the representation of someone with limb differences here is actually very well done. Oh, it, it's incredibly well done. If it wasn't for that uh, legend's the wrong word, but maybe status that his casting gives the film. If you just put this in front of someone and didn't tell them anything about Harold Russell's backstory, I don't think anyone would pick him out and say he's the one that's not a professional actor. Yeah, not completely. At, at times, I did find that his line readings were a little flat. So he he did well. I don't know if he did as well as he is remembered. So we'll we'll get to the awards that this won later. I will say now, he is the only person in history who has won two Academy Awards for one job. Yes. Um, and he he only really has one other notable credit other than this. And I don't think they really talk about him per se, but I know that on Film and Water, uh, Rob Kelly covered uh, Richard Donner's Inside Moves, which is about uh, differently abled people dealing with life after the accidents or whatever caused them um, to have the challenges that they have. And Harold Russell has a supporting role in that film as well. But those, that film and then Inside Moves, which was like in 1980, are really his only two notable credits. Yeah, he's, his IMDb list only has five. And Best Years of Our Lives is his first credit. Inside Moves is his second. Aside from things where he plays himself in, well, Diary of a Sergeant is the one that, that got him the role even though he's uncredited playing himself. And then there's We the People at Sullivan Show. So there's a lot of things where he's brought in as himself. But in terms of fictionalized characters, this is one of five. And the others are Guest Spot on Trapper, John M.D., Guest Spot on China Beach as Uncle Connell in two episodes. And then in 1997, he played Blessed William in Dogtown. And he passed away at age 88 in 2002. So. I strongly suspect that IMDb list is complete. Yep. He does also appear in Uncredited Performer of Chopsticks in the soundtrack of Best Years of Our Lives. We have Teresa Wright in this again. And in in some ways, because the film focuses so much on Fred, I feel I Peggy's more integral to the plot than Al. Al is kind of what introduces Peggy, but Teresa Wright, we've talked about her before. I don't think she's an actress that's well-remembered today, but she was also in uh, Mrs. Miniver and Shadow of a Doubt. Yeah, and she actually did quite well in this. Mm-hmm. So, as much as I say, I, we'll, we'll get to the Oscar counts, and I agree with awarding people Academy Awards in all the categories that it won and possibly a few more. This is loaded with exceptional performances. Yes. I mean, like I said, Harold Russell is one of the few where some of his line readings are, are flat enough that I don't know if I would have voted for him to win that Oscar, but that may only be coming across because he is surrounded with Oscar-worthy performances. So if he were in a more typical film, his his performance may have stood out more because it didn't have that same comparison of everyone that was surrounding him. And some of that's probably down to William Wyler as well. I know we've spoken about him before, again, because of Mrs. Miniver, but one of the things I don't think we went into is I think one of William Wyler's strengths as a director was working with actors. I mean, if you look at some of the Oscar stats, you know, above and beyond what he acquired for himself, under his direction, 14 different actors or actresses won either Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress. 
that's a lot to be won under one director's guidance. You know, Betty Davis won her first Best Actress Award for Jezebel under his direction, and she directly attributed it to him. She finally had a director, she said, who met and challenged her talent. So, Yeah, uh, some of that I've heard people claim, well, part of that is because he was such a prolific director. But I think it may be, you know, the, the classic chicken and the egg thing where he's such a prolific director because he keeps getting great performances out of people and they keep walking home with Oscars. So they kept hiring him to do it again. Like, right. If we tip our hat a little bit and reveal in the future, based on what we've already discussed, our listeners, if they've been keeping track, would know that this is his second win. Well, they've heard he's got five nominations prior to this year and one win for best director. This year is actually his second win and his sixth nomination, and he will be nominated five more times, or six more times, sorry, and win again mm -hmm. for Ben-Hur in 1959. So I would have to go through and do research to see if anyone has been nominated for Best Director as often as he has. That's 12 nominations. I think he leads nominations and I think he's probably in, he's definitely in the top 10 for wins, maybe the top five. I know that he and Fred Capper are tied at three and John Ford had four, but I don't know if any modern directors have had more wins than John Ford has. There's none that I could think of it. I think Steven Spielberg might be next, but he's also in that three to four range, I believe. Yeah. So, yeah, it's definitely a short list that he's on. So, you know, I think given the conversation, we might as well go through all the wins and awards. Okay. The 19th Annual Awards were held on March 13th, 1947, hosted by Jack Benny in the Shrine Auditorium. The Best Motion Picture Award was given. So this is no longer outstanding production. We are getting to that best picture. There were only five nominees. The Best Years of Our Lives won out over Henry V, It's a Wonderful Life, The Razor's Edge, and The Yearling. William Wyler won Best Director, beating out David Lean for Brief Encounter, Frank Capra for It's a Wonderful Life, uh, Robert Siomak, or Siodmak for The Killers, and Clarence Brown for The Yearling. Now, Frederick March won the Best Actor Oscar for playing Al Stevenson here in The Best Years of Our Lives, beating out Laurence Olivier as Henry V, Larry Parks as Al Jolson in The Al Jolson Story, Gregory Peck in The Yearling, and James Stewart for It's a Wonderful Life. And this is his second win, correct? I believe so. Olivia de Havilland won Best Actress for To Each His Own, up against other nominees, uh, Celia Johnson for Brief Encounter, Jennifer Jones for Duel in the Sun, Rosalind Russell for Sister Kenny, and Jane Wyman for The Yearling. Best Supporting Actor went to Harold Russell for The Best Years of Our Lives. Up against uh, Charles Coburn for The Green Years, William Demerst for The Al Jolson Story, Claude Rains for Notorious, and Clifton Webb for The Razor's Edge. Best Supporting Actress, again, this film was not nominated. That went to Ann Baxter for The Razor's Edge. There were also nominations for Ethel Barrymore in The Spiral Staircase, Lillian Gish in Duel in the Sun, Flora Robertson for The Saratorica Trunk, and Gail Sondergaard for Anna and the King of Siam. Best Original Screenplay went to The Seventh Veil. Actually went to Muriel Box and Sydney Box for The Seventh Veil. Other nominated films were The Blue Dahlia, Children of Paradise, Notorious, and Road to Utopia. For the best screenplay, that went to Robert E. Sherwood for The Best Years of Our Lives, beating out the teams of writers who worked on Anne and the King of Siam, Brief Encounters, The Killers, and Rome Open City. The best motion picture story went to Vacation from Marriage, beating out Dark Mirror, Strange Love of Martha Ivers, The Stranger, and To Each His Own. Best documentary short subject went to Seeds of Destiny. It's a post-war film, so again, it's Department of Defense talking about the millions of children 
who were homeless, parentless, orphaned, and in poor health as a result of the Holocaust. Other nominees include Atomic Power, Life at the Zoo, Paramount News, issue number 37, and uh, Traffic with the Devil. Best cartoon short subject went to The Cat Concerto. That's a Tom and Jerry film. The live-action one-reel short subject went to Facing Your Danger, which is an amateur cameraman who was on a, a boat trip during the war. Best live-action two-reel is A Boy and His Dog. The best scoring for dramatic picture went to Hugo Freidhofer for The Best Years of Our Lives. Beating out Bernard Herrmann for Anne and the King of Siam, as well as the nominees from Henry V, Humoresque, and The Killers. Best scoring of a motion picture, or of a musical picture, sorry, went to The Jolson Story. This was not uh, eligible for that one. It wasn't a musical. Best original song went to On the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe from the Harvey Girls. Best sound recording. Best Years of Our Lives was nominated. It lost to The Jolson Story. It's a Wonderful Life was the third nominated film in that category. Best Art Direction, Interior Black and White, went to Anna and the King of Siam. Other nominees were Kitty and the Razor's Edge. Best Art Direction, Interior Decoration, Color, went to The Yearling, up against Caesar and Cleopatra and Henry V. Best Cinematography, Black and White, went to Anna and the King of Siam, beating out The Green Years. Best Color Cinematography went to The Yearling, beating out The Jolson Story. Best Film Editing went to The Best Years of Our Lives, beating out It's a Wonderful Life, The Jolson Story, The Killers, and The Yearling. And the Best Special Effects went to Blythe Spirit, beating out A Stolen Life. There are also some honorary and memorial awards given here. The Academy Juvenile Award went to Claude Jarman Jr., the Irving Jean Thalberg Memorial Award went to Samuel Goldwyn, who produced many of the Best Picture winners up to this point, including this one. And then the Academy Honorary Awards went to Laurence Olivier for his outstanding achievement as an actor, producer, and director, bringing Henry V to the screen, to Ernest Lubschitz for his distinguished contributions to the art of the motion picture, and the third one went to Harold Russell for bringing hope and courage to his fellow veterans through his appearance in the best years of our lives. So the actor who did have hooks for his hands won a special award, essentially for participating and saying, hey, you can go on and be successful following this. At least popular opinion is that was done because they thought that he didn't have a shot at the category in which he was nominated, and then he surprised everyone by winning it. Yeah, which I can see, because had, had I been a voter in this era, I would have had no problems putting forth Dana Andrews for Best Actor. Yeah. And Frederick March for Best Supporting Actor, because as we've said, his role was smaller, and doing the Memorial Award for Harold Russell. A couple of things... The most nominated film that won nothing but is probably the best known out of the pack today is It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, it bombed at the box office, but it was clearly well regarded in the time. It got five nominations here. Yeah. Just because I like to contrast things that we've watched, especially when they're kind of close together for you and I, I alluded to... Al, Frederick March's character, having a drinking problem. What did you think of his probably more subtle portrayal of an alcoholic versus uh, Ray Milans and The Lost Weekend? I think that, as you said, this is much more subtle because they're not telling the same story they were telling with Ray Milland. Right. The Ray Milland's story, or his character, was a character whose drinking problem had ruined his life. Whereas Al is still fully functional at this point. Had we continued to watch these characters for another five to ten years, that may not still be the case. So at this point, he's drinking enough to concern his wife, so she's actually keeping tally. And, you know, when he's giving the speech, he was a little slurred and, and out of sorts. So... Yeah, this is a lot more subtle, but I I think that's because they it's not the same degree of alcoholism 
possibly because they're just picking him up at an earlier part of his life on that path. Right. I, I think he he could very well have issues in the future because I I've never personally been involved in a war. I sincerely hope that there's no cause for that for anyone in the future because the people who enlist for the right reasons often find it extremely difficult to live with the memories of what happened when they were out there and deployed. Well, and Al was an infantry sergeant. And I want to be, I, I guess I should just add a disclaimer. I feel like Blaine and I are being respective of the armed services when we talk about the challenges of being in the war and the horrors of war. So some of the comparisons and contrasts we're making aren't meant to denigrate anyone who served or any particular branch. Yeah, absolutely not. Anyone who has chosen to serve has my undying respect because I, I could not do it. A abso absolutely. But when you look at Harold and Fred, Fred's a bombardier. He certainly faced death, but he's far more remote from the enemy to a certain aspect. And even the same with Harold on a ship. Infantry, Al was having to kill and defend at close quarters. So I, I am sure all three men have their demons, but I could see Al's perhaps being more visceral. I would agree. Just as a bombardier, Fred may have actually killed more people. But from his perspective, we see at the beginning that, yeah, that was his cockpit, but he's not used to seeing details and actually being able to see the people in the cars. Mm -hmm. So he knows people have died as a result of his actions, but he's never seen their faces. And he, there is that one step removed, even though he's traumatized. Whereas, like you said, Al's role, he's probably looked into the eyes of more people that he's killed than he'd care to admit. Or care to remember, I should say. So I can see he would have... He, he could very well have the greatest psychological damage of the rest. And this is in an era where getting therapy and getting psychological help had more stigmatization than it does today. And I don't think it should. Mm. Well, and maybe that's the magic of the film that it gets that across without having available to it the shorthand of showing us what they experienced. Yeah, we just see the effects. We don't see the causes. They tell us enough that we can imagine what the causes were, especially for a film released in 1946. Right. This was hot on the hills. Yeah, I can imagine a lot of veterans in this audience having buttons pushed that made watching this a very uncomfortable experience. Maybe not to the degree of, say, All's Quiet on the Western Front, or, you know, even down the road, some of the war movies that we're going to have, like Saving Private Ryan, because it's not showing any combat situations. But I can feel when we see these veterans struggling with their memories of wartime and seeing the psychological effect, I can imagine veterans in the audience going, I know what that character is feeling right now because I am feeling it too. Yeah. I think Myrna Loy was fine in this. She has to walk that thin line between bemused and worried. Yeah, she had a very challenging role, sadly not a very meaty role. I, I think Teresa Wright's character of Peggy is the, well, no, she and Wilma are the two characters that have depth, mm -hmm. but Peggy's the only one who has both depth and an arc. Yes. She's actually the, the only female character with an arc of any kind. Myrna Loy's character sees her husband as he is and continues with it. We've got Wilma who accepts Harold or Homer, sorry, Harold's the actor. She accepts Homer <laughs> despite 
his injuries and she still loves him and wants to continue even though he doesn't understand how that can be so we've got we've got a lot of well-defined characters but yeah i think peggy and wilma are the two that have depth and peggy's the only one that has an arc as far as the female characters go even fred's wife we find out seemed to have more love for his uniform and paycheck than the actual man. And I think that was nicely handled because having a happy ending that involves divorce in 1946 without making the other spouse seem like an absolute monster is a very difficult thing to do. Right. It also kind of spoke to maybe the whirlwind nature of war. And what I mean by that is if Fred wasn't getting enlisted, would he have, you know, would he have rushed into this marriage with Marie at the outset? Or would they have learned how incompatible they were in advance of that? Yeah, you know, if he weren't getting enlisted and drafted, I don't even think she'd have given him the time of day. Yeah. And her character is, they did a really nice job of showing that they are fundamentally incompatible without making her seem really nasty or evil. Sure, she's shallow, but she is not a bad person. She just doesn't understand them. And part of that is the way Virginia Mayo plays her. So you clearly see that these two are not compatible, but that doesn't mean both characters don't deserve some happiness. You don't hate her, but you understand this is not a healthy relationship for either of them. Yeah, I'm I'm glad we've turned to Marie a little bit. Most people, if they know Virginia Mayo, know her as being kind of um, of lo- a love interest type for Danny Kaye films or being Crosby films. So this was certainly the first time I had seen her in anything with any dramatic heft to it. So it was a pleasant surprise. Yeah, the IMDb says she's best known for this role, for her role in White Heat. A Song is Born with Danny Kaye, as you mentioned, and then Captain Horatio Hornblower with Gregory Peck. So, yeah, she I, I think she does do a number with them. Uh, looking at her list, I probably encountered her for the first time in a guest role in Remington Steel from 1984. <laughs> um, and... I would have recently seen her in Murder, She Wrote as well. Hooray for Homicide. My wife and I are doing a rewatch of that, and she was in Season 1, Episode 3. Wow. Listeners of the old films like this, if you haven't tried Murder, She Wrote, it is a a decent 1980s murder mystery. You know, it never gets gory, but one of the things that, that they had for the original Season 1 marketing is... That, you know, it stars Angela Lansbury, and she brought her Rolodex. Yeah. <laughs> one of the big problems with a lot of 70s and 80s detective stories is the one person you recognize is obviously the killer. Because that was the big guest star. But there are episodes of Murder, She Wrote, where fans of classic films, well, you'll go in and you'll recognize nine people. And say, okay, these five were stars before this episode. These four became stars after this episode. And even none of them are the killer. So you'll see a lot of stars, but you won't know that they're the killer because there's like five or six major celebrities and it's not necessarily the major celebrity who did it. So again, it's it's an aside, but... So it's not always William Shatner or Patrick McGowan is what you're saying? No, it's not. And at least Columbo, <laughs> they can get away with having that one major guest star who's always the killer. Because Columbo's not a whodunit. Columbo's a how do you prove it? Right. And it's probably my favorite detective series of all time. And I'm a bit of a buff in those franchises. I've got many. But anyway... um. Yeah, she did really well. Should we discuss Hoagie Carmichael a bit? Sure. I'm not really familiar with him. I I know that he... So, I didn't really cover this in the synopsis, but kind of a a through line in terms of the setting is a bar that uh, Homer's uncle owns, and that uncle is played by Hoagie Carmichael. 
Yeah, and he's... This is his fifth acting credit out of 23, going up to 1972. So, yeah, he's not well known for his acting, but he is mostly a musician. I mean, he owns the bar, but we see him sitting at the piano more often than anything else, which in a lot of ways is where he belongs. If you look him up on the IMDb, yeah, 23 acting credits, 386 soundtrack credits. Wow. So they brought him in for the music. So when these guys are playing piano, they're actually playing piano. That's not just Hoagie Carmichael. That's also Harold Russell, which was a nice touch because he talks about going for a piano lesson. And Al almost chuckles because he, he thinks it's, you know, joke and sarcastic. And then a few minutes later in the film, no, he's, he's playing the piano. He's playing chopsticks, mm-hmm. but he's playing the piano. Should we just touch on the other cast members? Dana Andrews, Myrna Loy? Yeah, Dana Andrews was mostly a noir actor before this, wasn't he? Yeah, I think that's what he's best known for. He was Detective Lieutenant Mark McPherson in Laura, which is probably, that would have been my bet for his biggest role. Mm -hmm. And the IMDb agrees. So he's done some really good work in that genre. He was active right up until 1984 with guest spots on, you know, The Love Boat and Falcon Crest. He's done work in Ike the Warriors as miniseries and a TV movie. But yeah, a lot of his work went into the the 60s and it's frequently in mysteries and detectives and film noir. So writing through his list. He's known for Zero Hour, Curse of the Demon, Beyond a Reasonable Doubt, While the City Sleeps, Strange Lady in Town, Three Hours to Kill. There's also Duel in the Jungle and things like that. So running through it, he'd had a decent career up to this point as well. He'd previously been in State Fair, Laura, uh, The Oxbow Incident, Ball of Fire. His career really started in 1940. Laura is what I remember him from. That is an incredible noir film with um, him in the lead, as you suggested. But you have Gene Tierney, Clifton Webb, and uh, Vincent Price in it. Yeah, when Fox started putting out the Fox Film Noir collection, every few months they released three film noirs and they had numbered spines. And they were coming out in no particular order in terms of you know, production schedules or themes or anything like that. They were being put out in the order. As far as I could tell, the only order is we think these three will sell the best. So that's the first wave. And then we think these three will sell the second best. So that's the second wave. <laughs> and Laura's number one in that series. I, and I totally agree with that. I've only seen him in a few things like that, but he always does those roles nicely. And I think he captured it well. I was actually surprised to see how many credits he had consistently through 1940 through 1945. Because he plays this so well, I assumed that he was a veteran. But Mm -hmm. I don't see how that can be given his shooting schedule. No, but I think it's fair to mention that William Wyler was. Okay, so again, we could be looking at just his ability to push and direct the actors to get that performance from them. A matter of fact, I think William Wyler spent a small amount of time on the Memphis bell, which is a plane that would be mortalized in a a film, you know, late eighties, early nineties, but yeah, which was a bomber. Just looking at Friedrich March. He did serve. Yeah. So Friedrich March, served in World War One as a lieutenant. So his shooting schedule looks like if he served in World War II, it was fairly brief because uh, he's just got a gap. He's got one credit from 1942 and none from 1943, but he's got a number from 41 and 44. So I don't know if he was on the stage or if he briefly re-enlisted because he wasn't the youngest man at the time, but yeah, he was a lieutenant in the army in the First World War. 
So I can imagine that those experiences really helped inform this. And that could be why he was so game for participation. And now the fact that Dana Andrews is the one of the three leads who wasn't an actual veteran, I wonder if that's maybe why the others were nominated and he wasn't. Because I didn't see his performance as being the weakest of the three by any stretch. So there may be an element of we're going to recognize your service as well in those nominations. You know, it may have been, though, if there was fairness, you would have thought that it would have been flipped. I mean, not that not that I want to take anything away from Harold Russell or Frederick March, but, you know, you, you would think that the one who convincingly acted as if he had the experience when he didn't would be the better actor. But, but no, um, I, I just did a quick check. Weiler uh, was a major in the uh, Air Force from 42 to 45, filmed a pair of uh, documentaries for the war effort while he was in the war, and flew on bombing missions in 43. So Fred is the one that probably most matches with Weiler's experiences as a character. Okay, so his direction probably has a very large part of Dana Andrews' performance here. Not to take anything away from Dana Andrews. I mean, he still had to execute, but... Yeah, but he. you talk about actors doing their research. His research could have been going to the director and saying, so... Right. right so, shall we get to our comparisons for the year? Sure. So if we look at the releases from 1946 on the Internet Movie Database. The most highly regarded film by modern audiences is It's a Wonderful Life. It's got an average score of 8.6 out of 10, with almost 386,000 votes. Now, we don't normally talk about the number of votes. I'm bringing that up because, you know, the next highest voting number I can see is Notorious at close to 90,000. So far more people have seen It's a Wonderful Life than anything else as far as this concerned, but I can totally believe that given how pervasive it is every Christmas. Number two is A Matter of Life and Death, which is about a British wartime aviator who cheats death and must argue for his life before a celestial court. Then we've got Shine, a movie in post-war Italy. Panique is apparently a French film that sounds like it's uh, a murder where the police are planting fake evidence. And then number five is The Best Years of Our Lives with an 8.0 out of 10. Followed by Notorious, The Big Sleep, Beauty and the Beast, the Jean Cocteau and René Clément versions, mm -hmm. uh, My Darling Clementine, The Killers. And then I'm just scrolling down here. The Postman Always Rings Twice is number 16. I'm just the razor's edge that's another one that got a lot of nominations that's number 23 the yearling comes in at 27 the jolson story is at 30 so you know we've got the blue dahlia here song of the south comes in at number 34 the harvey girls at 36 so this one the nominees are fairly well spread throughout the year and and the king of siam is the other one that had a huge number of nominations, that's number 47 for the year out of 83 mm. titles that have at least 1,000 votes and were released in 1946. Now, comparing it with Letterboxd, Best Years of Our Lives fares a little bit better. It's number three instead of number five. It's a Wonderful Life is still number one. A Matter of Life and Death is still number two. Then we have The Best Years of Our Lives, Beauty and the Beast, Notorious, My Darling Clementine, Shoe Shine, The Big Sleep, and on down. It's worth noting a matter of life and death would have been ineligible because while a British film, technically by the Academy standards of the time, it would have been a foreign film. Okay, so it, yeah, we know that they are eligible, but given that it was a British film, let me come down and see if I could find the release dates here. Yeah, it, it was not released in the U.S. The 
the Los Angeles premiere was January 23rd, 1947. Oh, okay. So you're right that it would not have been eligible in 1946, but it might have been eligible in 1947. So at this point, so long as it was an English film, it could be eligible? or Because I know eventually financing plays into it. It does, but yeah, at, at this point, it, anything is eligible as long as it was released in L.A. during that calendar year. Okay. So while foreign films were eligible, they were often just, they didn't get the votes because people weren't watching them. And they just weren't made available. Yeah, well, that that makes sense because Brief Encounter is the same. It's a British film. It's not an American production. Mm-hmm. And I believe that one actually came out in 45. Uh, yep. In, according to Letterboxd, it's the second best film of 1945. So it got its eligibility in 1946. Okay. So the, I, I, I think I might be in line with uh, the modern voters. If I were to pick now, I probably would pick It's a Wonderful Life over the best years of our lives. But if I were voting the year after World War II ended, I may have voted as the Academy did in the day. Because they are both excellent films. One is just probably much more resonant when you could go out and see people dealing with PTSD on a daily basis. Right. Yeah, <laughs> this is going to sound horrible. I... I have such a fondness for um, Thomas Mitchell's performance as Uncle Billy in It's a Wonderful Life that I just can't rank another film that year higher than It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, and I can see that going through this list. Like, yeah, it, It's a Wonderful Life only got five nominations. The original Anna and the King of Siam sounds like it's better than I would have thought. It was later remade as The King and I. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it does sound like at the time, they were also looking at The Yearling and The Jolson Story. But looking at how those come out over time, I haven't seen either. But they're now so far down the list that when it came down to voting, it probably felt like you were voting for one of these two. And it would have been hard not to vote for the really effective post-war film the year after the war. Yeah. In fact, the Golden Globes largely agree. They had their fourth annual ceremony. Recently remembered that we promised to go through these as an impromptu promise in the first time, and then we haven't been doing it. So for this year, the Golden Globes also picked Best Years of Our Lives as the best picture. They went with Gregory Peck for The Yearling as Best Actor, Rosalind Russell for Sister Kenny as Best Actress, Clifton Webb as Best Supporting Actor for The Razor's Edge. And that one, I'm, I might have actually voted for... Claude Rains and Notorious for that one myself. Best Supporting Actress went to Ann Baxter for The Razor's Edge. Best Director did go to Frank Capra for It's a Wonderful Life. Best Film Promoting International Understanding went to The Last Chance by Leopold Littenberg. And a Special Achievement Award went to uh, Harold Russell for The Best Years of Our Lives. So he was also recognized by the Golden Globes. And just to sort of dot the I's and cross the T's doubling back. The previous year, Best Picture was Lost Weekend. Best Actor was Ray Bland for Lost Weekend. Best Actress was Ingrid Bergman for The Bells of St. Mary's. Best Supporting Actor was J. Carol Nash for uh, Medal for Benny. Supporting Actress was Angela Lansbury, Picture of Dorian Gray. Best Director was Billy Wilder for The Lost Weekend. And best film promoting international understanding is The House I Live In. And then the second act, uh, annual Best Picture Going My Way, Best Actor was Alexander Knox for Wilson. Best Actress was Ingrid Bergman again for Gaslight. Best Supporting Actor was Barry Fitzgerald for Going My Way. Supporting Actress was Agnes Moorhead for Mrs. Parkington. And Best Director was Leo McCary for Going My Way. So up to this point... There's very good agreement in the best picture mm -hmm. selections between the Golden Globes and the Academy Awards. 
So Blaine, would you recommend this to anyone in particular, or is this another, if like us, you're going through and watching all of the best films? Yeah, this this isn't a Cimarron or a Cavalcade where it, it's not one of the, those weak ones where I don't understand how it won. This is one that is much easier to recommend, especially if you are looking for some understanding of the veteran experience, because this covers it, but it does it in a very subtle and non-preachy way. It's a lot of show, very little tell in that show-don't-tell vernacular. So you can get that understanding, but if you want to shut that part of your brain off and just watch a story, there's also a very good story here with three characters whose lives really do intertwine enough that it feels like they belong in one film and you're not watching some sort of anthology where the disparate plot threads are edited together, which sometimes happens in a story of this type. So yeah, I would recommend it to anyone who wants to see something depicting the veteran experience or, you know, the war films in general. You could watch it just for the performances. Because like we said, although a lot of the female roles don't have a lot of meat on them, the male performances and characters do quite well. And as shallow as the characters are written, the actresses deliver their roles very well, too. I, I would agree. A trend that I've seen online in the States over the past uh, couple of years is a lot of disgruntlement, particularly from members of the armed services over, you know, we have Memorial Day and we have Veterans Day. And a lot of um, civilians treat the two as interchangeable. And they really are supposed to commemorate kind of two different um, sets of members of the armed services. You know, Memorial Day is for those who lost their life during wars. Veterans Day is to honor all of the veterans. And I always remembered growing up things like D-Day and the Longest Day and the war epics being shown on Veterans Day. This would be much more appropriate programming for a TCM or someone like that if they wanted to have films highlighting veterans and the veteran experience. Yeah, I would agree. This this does not glorify war in the way that a lot of the other films do. So this is not... A lot of the other war films are adventure films with no pretense of accuracy in war. So they're big and they're fun and they're bombastic and they're glorified, but that's not the way veterans describe their war experiences for the most part. This feels more like it's actually showing what it's like to have come back from the war. So yeah, I, I would agree. Not just recommend seeing it, but I would recommend that the things like TCM that are picking their programming seriously consider this. And I'll I'll pull us back just a little bit. There's even that I alluded it to it in the synopsis. There's that scene in uh, the drugstore to where Homer encounters someone who is anti-war, and it's pretty much the only time. While this is about the impact of the war, there are never really any judgments made about the war. It is an event that happened that caused these things and we don't dwell on it. But there's, you know, there's the, we should have never been over there. It was a hoax. We had no reason being over there, guy. I, I would actually correct that a little bit. He wasn't anti-war. He explicitly said, we fought on the wrong side of the war. Yes, thank you. Sorry. And um, I, I just wanted to touch on it because, you know, part of the Vietnam veteran experience that you would always hear is how, because it was an unpopular military engagement, that sentiment was applied to the veterans who served in it. And this showed that that wasn't necessarily unique to Vietnam, that even even World War II that had its detractors for whatever reason, 
and they applied that same negative stigma that they had with the engagement to the people who participated in it. Yeah. And that's, that's actually a, that's a problem I'm seeing online today. I mean, we I try not to be too topical. So this is a bit of an evergreen podcast, especially since we're looking at historical films, but this is being recorded in the summer of 2020 when we are seeing the people who who would have agreed that we fought on the wrong side of World War II are much more comfortable expressing those opinions than they have been in the past. So I vehemently disagree with them. Yes. <laughs> but they are definitely still out there. It is a bigger problem in the U.S. than it is here in Canada. But it is showing up in both countries bolstered by certain political leaders that are out there today who, although they may not be explicitly supporting them are also not publicly denouncing these actions the way I think they should be either. Yeah. Silence has consequences. If anything, world war two should have taught us that. Yeah. But I'm hoping it's an almost always darkest before the dawn situation. And this is the wake up call that we need to find the, real root of the problems and address those. But that is even more depressing a conversation than this veterans experience film. It it does end on a hopeful note. It ends, you know, on Homer and Wilma's wedding and you see Peggy and um, Fred reunite. So it does end on a hope, hopeful tone. Yeah. it It's easy to believe that, that all three of these actors can have happy endings or all three of these characters, I say, can end up with happy endings to their stories. I mean, yeah, Al is getting a little bit into the alcoholism, but it's not out of control completely. It's, you know, that's not impacting his work life. His family is still there with him. And, you know, one of them, one of our other leads, Homer, discovers that he hasn't lost his love because of this. And Fred finds a love that seems to be a much better fit. And they have, if you also, you know, we talked about trauma a little bit during this podcast. It also shows the importance of a support system. They kind of fall into meeting each other, but they become their own support system. So, yeah, you can see Al overcoming his problems, not only with the help of his family, but with the help of Fred and Homer. You know those two will be there for him. Yeah. and. It's interesting because we watch them meet at the start of the film. There's even one comment where Al says, yeah, Homer and I were both in this fight. We just didn't know it at the time. So they got that bond. We even see the support that Fred is getting from Peggy. He talks in his sleep because he's got recurring nightmares about something that happened. Mm -hmm. And the next morning he gives her an opportunity to talk about it because he remembers that she supported him and she doesn't bring it up. And yet when he's back home with his wife and has the nightmare, that's the first thing she says is, you're, you're talking in your sleep now. Tell me everything about this. Which is the last thing he wants to do at that moment. Right. Now, psychiatrists may be saying it would be healthier for him to talk about it and work through it than try to suppress it and ignore it. But Peggy is giving him what he wants, even if it may not actually be what he needs at that time. So it it's a subtle way to show that Peggy is a better fit for him. Yeah, I think we can agree that this is, even if it's not exactly our, even if we wouldn't today vote this as the number one pick for the year, I don't think we're saying the Academy made a mistake by choosing this film. No, not at all. Yeah, so you're encouraged to go check it out? So we've covered another decade worth of films so continuing the tradition that we've started we'll uh, talk about what's been our favorite film out of uh, the past 10 that we've looked at and for me hands down it's Casablanca even in this tougher lineup I don't think we've had we, we keep beating them up, I, but I don't think there's been a cavalcade <laughs> in 
uh, the past 10 that we've looked at where there's an easy throw out, but just, just in terms of its impact and memorable lines. And I, I still remember when I rewatched it, I could not wipe the smile off my face the entire time. It's, it's got to be Casablanca. Yeah, and when I'm making my picks, I go through at a first pass how I've voted for everything on Letterboxd because I log every film I watch there. And two films from the past 10 have received perfect scores. And that's You Can't Take It With You and Casablanca. And it feels like a tough choice right now because I've only seen You Can't Take It With You once, and that was a very pleasant surprise. I have seen Casablanca repeatedly, and it still holds up. So I'm also going to go with Casablanca because I know I still love it after seeing it probably 10 times. I don't know if I'll still love You Can't Take It With You this much. If I watch it 10 more times, going back to the first 10 films, my first choice for the first 10 was All Quiet on the Western Front. And I think You Can't Take It With You is better than that. So our second 10 years has movies that are better than anything in the first 10 years. But I would agree that Casablanca is the top pick. And we've also picked our bottom picks, which I think last time we agreed was Cavalcade. This time, I think we're going to have a little more disagreement for the worst of the batch, because I am going with Gone with the Wind, the incredibly aged racial politics just do not sit with me. So, yeah, I I would take you know, just quick review while Trey is thinking about this, because I think we forgot to remember that we're doing the bottom picks until we open up the spreadsheet here. We are looking at. The Life of Emil Zola, You Can't Take It With You, Gone With the Wind, Rebecca, How Green Was My Valley, Mrs. Miniver, Casablanca, Going My Way, The Lost Weekend, and The Best Years of Our Lives. Um, it, it, it's tough for me. It's, it's between two films. I completely agree with you about the subject matter of Gone with the Wind. There are some technical aspects of it that make it difficult for me to call it the best of the year. Um, if I objectively look at some of the um, performances like uh, Olivia de Havilland's They're Stellar, there are a couple of shots that I think are some of the most beautiful shots um, put to film up to this point. And then there's Going My Way, which is harmless kind of middle-of-the-road musical fluff. But I'll agree with you and give it to Gone with the Wind. Okay. The, the, the subject matter with today's lens still makes it, still makes it a rough... It just makes it incredibly hard not to count that in the tally against it. Yeah, it does. And that's, like you're saying, it. it's not that we could fault it on a technical level. When it comes to performances and assembling a movie, it's undeniably great. But the story they chose to tell and the verbiage, which someone is a little raw for me because I'm... That's the episode I'm actually editing as we're recording this one. We record about a year in advance, and right now I'm editing about six months in advance. And, yeah, just reminders of some of the things that are in there, like referring to the great invader for the people from the north and stuff like that. It's It doesn't sit right. But that's our, our second... Try to call it a decade, but our first grouping only had nine years in it because there were the two picks in the first year. Yeah, and I, I I will agree with you. Going through everything that you named, because I picked All Quiet in the Western Front as well, I would put that ahead of Gone with the Wind and Going My Way and maybe even The Life of Emil Zola. But I think everything else out of the past 10 that we've looked at surpasses all quiet on the western front so it's definitely been a stronger 
decade. Yeah, that it has. And looking ahead, we've got some other good decades coming up as well. So our the next batch of 10 of the next decade is going to kick off with Gentleman's Agreement. So that is the topic of our next podcast. And they're going to continue through Hamlet, All the King's Men, All About Eve, and American in Paris, the greatest show on earth, From Here to Eternity, On the Waterfront, Marty, and Around the World in 80 Days. And this is a batch I'm really looking forward to because I think it it may be the last decade where I've seen so few films. I have actually only seen one of those 10 prior to this podcast. Wow. Okay. And that's the last time that happens for really the rest of these. Even the our last decade where only three movies have actually been selected so far. And, you know, the next winner probably hasn't even been or possibly hasn't even been made yet. I've seen two of those three. But in the next batch, the only one I've seen to date is An American in Paris. Okay. And, yeah, I... Well, I'm not going to say much more on that at this point. We'll save it (laughs) for that podcast. So join us again next month when we take a look at Gentleman's Agreement. Thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. My mom always said... Life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir. I want some more.